Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author and teacher at Antioch University, uh, Deborah Lott. We're going to be talking about her new book, Don't Go Crazy Without Me. More than just the tragic comic coming-of-age story of a girl growing up under the magnetic spell of her outrageously eccentric father, Deborah Lott tells the story of an era, a time and place in Southern California that not many of us are aware of, but one that's important to understand in today's divisive world. Within the pace of a thriller in its final scenes, Deborah's world explodes when, as a volunteer in Robert F. Kennedy's presidential campaign, she attends his last stop at the Ambassador Hotel the night of his assassination. It is this night when she begins to see in both a personal and global way how grief can be turned into love. Her memoirs, essays, and reporting have been published in the Bellingham Review, the LA Times, and her family's legacy of hypochondria was featured on NPR's This American Life. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Nice to have you. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning. Well, the title of your book, I think, is really appropriate for you and your memoir, but also for us today in this divisive world, Don't Go Crazy Without Me. And I think at this time, many of us feel like we are going crazy. So let's, let's talk about your book and then talk about it, obviously, in the context of what's happening to us now with this coronavirus. Um, a memoir. I guess maybe just the first question is, why did you decide to write a memoir about your crazy dysfunctional family? (laughs) Um, I was always writing pieces about my family. I kept a journal for years and years, and then I I realized it needed to be a book. It wanted to be a book. Um, So it starts when I'm about four, and my father informs me that I've experienced my first death, that the man at the post office that I'm used to interacting with has died, and that I need to remember this forever. Um, And then it goes up till I'm 17 and finally break away from my dad and from my family and, and start to have a larger role in the world. Well, you grew up in a liberal Jewish family in the 60s, right? And so very, in very Los- liberal. Very Jewish. Yeah, we were very, I mean, <laughs> Jewish, Jewish. Yeah. My parents um, had both been kind of communists in their youth, and we were living in a neighborhood of all-white Republican Protestants. Um, to be Catholic was exotic in Lockerson in those days. So we were kind of the other. We had to stand in as the other for every marginalized group, I think. Um, so we so, were like, you know, the crazy Jews on the corner. So as crazy Jews on the corner, you're obviously you're the outsiders. How did that shape your life? Because, I mean, to be, well, defined as that and to be living it, right? I'm sure it. Right. Yeah, I think it made me into kind of a little anthropologist where I would kind of observe their society with interest. Like, it was just so, um, you know, foreign to me. Yeah, it was foreign to me. And, uh, you know, I saw my own family as weird. But on the other hand, when you're a kid, your family is the norm. So I kind of thought they were weird. And I think it's made me now always take sort of the outsider's view, always understand where the outsider is coming from, um, the other, the the marginalized, um, you know, kind of made me into a crusader for the marginalized. So uh, growing up, though, you also, you had an interesting relationship just individually, not 
just not the crazy Jews on the corner, but you also with your father and with your mother, and as you describe it, or it seems to me in the book, your mother's kind of distant. Your father is close, but in a crazy kind of way. So talk to yes. us about yeah. Yeah, so my father was um, very, very close in that I identified very much with him, um, and he was very overprotective and a hypochondriac, um, and my mother was emotionally distant and kind of let him do all the feeling for her. So he was larger than life, histrionic, uh, hysterical a lot of the time. If, If we got any minor illness, he would convince us that we were dying, um, whereas my mother would just kind of be quiet and kind of tell me that he was crazy and not to listen to him, but he was much more convincing. He was charismatic. Um, he was funny. He was fat. He had big appetites. It was very easy to fall under his sway. So he was larger than life, it sounds like, and very... Uh, he was larger than life. Yeah, physically um, and em- <laughs> emotionally, I guess, in every yeah. way. <laughs> yes, but, in every way. I mean, if we're going to go fast forward, we'll say, well, you turned out great. Here, you know, you're a teacher, you're an author, you're very successful. Take us through that journey, because how did that happen? Well, and, you know, yeah. many years of therapy along the way... <laughs> Many, many years of therapy um, and many years of um, kind of having, having to talk myself out of certain states of mind sometimes. Um, like just now with, with COVID, I think COVID is a hypochondriac's worst nightmare. I mean, I was raised to be a hypochondriac, and here we are with a disease you can get by, just by breathing in proximity to the wrong person who's asymptomatic, so you can't tell. The course of the disease is unpredictable. You can feel like you're getting better and then slam, go downhill, which, I mean, that just sends shudders of fear through me. Um, and all the rational information on how to protect yourself keeps changing from day to day. There's so much that's unknown. And when the, the unknown is there, um, irrationality can rush in. So, like, when I first wore a mask out in public, people thought I was nuts, and now everyone is wearing a mask. So, so what's nuts and what's reasonable? So, how do you keep yourself from going crazy? You're describing yourself. You're a hypochondriac, a germaphobe, I assume. I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not big on germs. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you stay sane? Because you, you know... You- well, but every day, every day, it's a, every day, it's like, how sane am I today? Um, I talk myself down. I think we all have to talk ourselves down, and we all have to keep trying to counter the fear with rational information, with what's reasonable. And I think it's, it's been really difficult because it has kept changing, and even the doctors are not sure what's going on, uh, why one person gets so much sicker than another person, what, what is a cytokine storm? Does that not sound like the worst thing to say to a hypochondriac? At the very end of this disease, you can think you're getting better, and then you can have a cytokine storm. And it sounds like something my father would have warned me against. You know, don't go out in the cytokine storm. Your father was right. <laughs> it's the <laughs> After all this. Well, that's it. A lot of what he grew up telling me is coming true. So he would have said, see, see? really happening. 
I think the unpredictability of it, which is what you're describing, and it's all for day to day. It because there are certain guidelines, yes, and we we try to follow all of those guidelines, but they do change. But the whole unpredictability of it is terrif- I think uh, become can yeah. become terrifying, and yeah. that that's on a day to day basis. Do you yes. know? Yeah. Do you know, or are you aware of anybody, either your friends, colleagues, family, who have had COVID nineteen and recouped? Yes. Yes. So at our, um, we had a Zoom seder at our Passover seder. There were two people: one a healthcare worker um, who's married to a family member, and and one um, a young college student who were both uh, just at the tail end of it. So at least they were recovering, so that was encouraging. Did they but, describe but yes. their symptoms and and their? I mean, uh, sometimes people have such different. They have different symptoms and and different reactions too, and there's a different time frame for getting better. So, we're, how how did that fit in with the two of them? Different. Yeah. Well, or, every time yeah. the the young, the, I could hear the healthcare worker cough. Was kind of horrifying. I mean, it was kind of a horrifying barky cough. Um, and then the, the college student, he was doing much, much better. He was younger and he was just, he said he was taking his vitamins and just getting, you know, his girlfriend was taking care of him and he was getting better. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it causes a lot of fear and there's no way not to be afraid, but fear is its own form of illness. And fear can make you sick too. Uh, I'm the first one to tell you that it's, it's like a bodily phenomenon, fear. Well, you've had that experience, as you talk about in your book, not from COVID-19, but fear and therapy, having to go into therapy. So it all kind of, I mean, so you understand, obviously, this is something you've experienced. What do you do for um, your, what we call social distancing? How do you social distance yourself? You're in California. Um, Well, it's easier in in California, I think, than it is in a lot of cities because we're not so densely situated. Um, my husband and I have been staying in our apartment and not really going out, having food delivered in and just going out the minimum. So I've been doing kind of extreme social distancing, but I find that the more I do it, it it's then other people start to feel like dangerous. I, I think the danger for a lot of us is we're going to wind up agoraphobic. We're going to yeah. come out of the end of this and we're not going to want to touch anybody, see anybody. They're all gonna. They're all gonna look like they're uh, contaminants, you know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, and and I'm glad I brought that up because I've had a similar experience. I go back and forth between New York City and Albany, and uh, was in New York City, and my son and uh, his wife and three, a set of twins, two year old and two years old, and a four year old, and we all came back to Albany, uh, and they are staying in my house and I'm staying in my boyfriend's house, my partner and his, and the only people for five weeks that we've seen or had any contact with us with them and them with us. Right. No, no people. Yeah. yeah. None of us yeah. have been out. We've ordered everything in, you know, Instacart and all that today is like the 20, the 35th day and now I think I'm safe to actually go in the house and touch the kids because usually I'm in the driveway and they're chasing me up the driveway laughing. <laughs> mm. Grammy running up the driveway. Mm. Talk about crazy. But 
Mm. I have that fear. Maybe I shouldn't touch the, you know, I've gotten used to this. Like I've only been with one person for 35 days. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, what you're saying really resonates, I guess. And that's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. Like everybody's going to be the right, other. And I, think, I think it also brings a lot of us back to fears of our childhood. I know I've talked to other people who are a little bit OCD-ish. And they find themselves doing obsessive compulsive behaviors that they haven't done since they were kids that are not even related to the virus, but like, you know, having to count or having to not just wash your hands for 20 seconds, but wash your hands for 20, 20 minutes. And um, I, I think it just brings up irrationality where there is a lack of information. Irrationality rushes in. Um, and, and, you know, and I learned to be irrational in my childhood, and then I had to kind of learn to be rational, too. What do you think, because th- I, I think this is, yes, and stressors bring out all the, the worst in us and all of our anxieties surface or resurface. So what would you say in your childhood, and you had an erratic, crazy childhood, the title of the book, um, what are the st- strengths that you can get from that because you've had that that kind of an experience that you can bring with you to this experience which is a whole other type of stressor and what were the negative stuff that you don't want to you know that you well, like to just so I think yeah. one of the strengths that I got so finally um, when my father had a psychotic break so when I was about 16 he started to go from being what my mother called lovably neurotic to actually psychotic where he lost touch with reality um, and I think that I really learned just to separate out and, and to, to talk to myself, to talk to myself reasonably. Um, and then I ventured out into the world. Um, I was dating, and, and actually um, sex was kind of salvation for me. It was a good thing. It was a different kind of experience of my body. Um, and then I became a volunteer in Robert F. Kennedy's campaign, and, and as I right in Don't Go Crazy Without Me. I was there the night he was assassinated. And that made me really think about the difference between true grief and the way adults grieved and how grief could make you more empathetic, uh, could make you a more loving person, or how grief could just make you nuts like it had made my dad. So I think I, I strive to handle loss because it's difficult for me. Um, I'm, I'm always kind of afraid of losing losing people, losing what I love, um, you know, the way time goes so so fast in our lives, um, and just how to turn that, that grief into love. So I think that's, that's one of the strengths that I ultimately got from my childhood. Um, but, you know, it, it leaves you, you, childhood trauma, you don't just get over it. It leaves you with, with uh, fear and um, behaviors that you developed as a kid, and uh, bad memories that come back. It does, but you've, I think also, as you, you've been through therapy, so you, you, where you do relive some of those childhood traumas and actually go through them again, and there's somewhat of a, or can be somewhat of a positive outcome, I'm assuming. Yeah, no, I had I had some great experiences in therapy. I mean, my first book, um, which was called In Session, The Bond Between Women and Their Therapists, was actually about women's experiences in therapy, where I interviewed a lot of women uh, about that. Um, and I had some really good therapy, and I had some not-so-good therapy. Um, but, yeah, therapy has 
has helped me. I have to say overall it's helped me, but I think it also helps to just self-reflect and to write. Writing is its own kind of therapy. Um, of, of course, when you write a memoir, like Don't Go Crazy, you don't want it to just be therapy for yourself. You want to also be creating a, a work of um, literary art that for, for other people. And, um, but, and but yeah, I was my next question was now, given the circumstances and you can't go on book tours and you you know the you know just normal ways in which you promote your book, how are you getting the book? Yes, you're on radio and uh, are there other ways, creative ways of uh, of uh, making of, of I was to say selling your book or getting the book out there. It's, um, it's yeah. not easy right now. I'm a, and people are so distracted. Um, I mean, I feel like my book is entertaining. My book is funny. Uh, and I, I hope it will provide, you know, some respite from what's going on, but also some maybe some clues into how to handle what's going on right now. But it, it, but it is hard. I mean, everything is virtual. Everything is via Zoom or podcast. Um, you, you can't have that really nice experience of being in a bookstore and signing books and getting to meet your readers. And what about the feedback? How are you getting, I assume you're getting your feedback online from your publishers, people, you know, feedback on the book. Where does that come it's from? It's all online. It's, it's all online. Um, and I've gotten some nice feedback from people saying, well, you know, this, I didn't expect this book to be funny and it's really funny. Or this book reminds me of my own childhood and what I went through in my family, even though my family was so different from your family. I, I think if you write about, something even very specific and in very vivid terms. People clue into it and they feel their own childhoods coming back. I think that's a lot of reason that people read memoirs is because they want to kind of relive certain aspects of their own childhood or to rethink it. You know, your, re- your memoir is it in a different way. Well, your book, uh, Deborah, it's been said is uh, really a perfect example of, you know, how we should be laughing or how we need to laugh in dark times, which I would say this is dark times and we do need to laugh. Uh, but you had two brothers or you have two brothers. Did they I react? I two brothers. Yeah. Did they cope differently with their childhoods than you? Well, that's a really interesting question because I have one brother who says he doesn't remember anything. It's like it never happened. He doesn't want to talk about it. I see certain behaviors in him that I can trace to our childhood. I think he can be a little bit compulsive sometimes. I think he can be very fearful, um, but he doesn't see the connections. He never did therapy. He would never do therapy. Um, my other brother is more like me. He has very vivid recall, so I can always go to him when I need to fact check because he's five years older and he remembers everything. Um, and he also struggles with a lot of, um, I think, fears, and and um, sorrow left over from our childhood. He had even a more he had more contentious relationship with my dad, and I think that it's it's sadder for him. But they don't really read what I write. It's funny. Um, in my family, we have kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy about my writing. They don't really want to know. They've kind of given me permission to write about them and to write about the family, but they don't really want to read it or know what I'm writing. <laughs> So you're you're sure that neither one of them have actually read the book or that they've read it and don't want to discuss it? 
Uh, no, they haven't read it. They haven't read it. Um, one brother, so my, my younger, they're both older, but my younger, five years older brother said to me, do you think it might upset me to read your book? And I said, I don't know. You know, I, that's hard to predict. He said, maybe I better not. Um, and there is one episode. So my book has these um, interspersed episodes of my current life. And there is one part of the of um, the book where I have an encounter with my brother about my writing, um, and he and he actually says, you know, if I wrote the book, it would be a different story. And I go, yeah. I mean, to the writer belongs the story. I'm sure if either one of my brothers actually wrote a memoir about our childhood, it would be a different story. Every child in the family has a different experience. Don't you find that, Catherine? I absolutely do, and I have two brothers, and uh, as I, I, I've, I haven't written a book, but as I discuss my childhood, and I've been in therapy too, uh, uh, and I think I'm the one who likes to talk about things more than they do, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. an incident though, and it comes from, we all have a different take on it. Well, we're, we're different ages, we had a different relationship with each one of our parents, the context is different for each of us, so it's exactly what you're saying. Because what's interesting, when you said you want to fact check with your older brother, I'm wondering, well, maybe the facts are a little bit different for him than they are for you. At least that's how mm-hmm. I experience it with my brothers. And it'll be, yep. oh, oh, because sometimes one sibling has more information at the time. Let's say, you know, you view something in one way, but your older brother views it in a different way. Because he's had a, he has a lot more at that time, if he's five, did you say five years older? Um, he has... Mm-hmm. A, yeah, his context is different. His experiences are different. He has a lot, yes, he, you know. Yes. Yeah, so that changes his... And he his had a much different relationship with both parents. I mean, he was, he was more like my mom. He was kind of withdrawn, um, a little bit on the depressive side. And I think they bonded. I mean, part of what created some trauma in my childhood was that he and my mom were kind of bonded against me and my dad because we, we were like just two duos that were very different. Um, I was a lot more like my dad, and he was a lot more like my mom. So we had very different relationships with our parents. Oh, that's the two of you. What about the third brother or the third sibling? Well, the third brother, he was kind of like in the book, I call him a free agent, because he would, he would kind of um, go from side to side. He couldn't decide whose side he was on. He was 10 years older than me. So he was, he was often out of the house when I was very young. Um, he, he was already finding his way in the world, and he had a certain toughness about him that allowed him to kind of get out sooner. What would you say the overall message for all of us would be if we're going to sit down, read your book, read your memoir, and I think we do need to read thing, books like your memoir instead of, you know, all, statistics about COVID-19 all of the time. Um, well, I think should... the me- the me- there's probably a lot of different messages. I mean, one message is that it doesn't help to worry and imagine catastrophe. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help anyone else. Um, it's, it's better to, to try to think about what you can actually do to protect yourself and what you can do to help other people because helping other people and reaching out to other people is really what's going to save all of us in a situation like this, right? Um, yeah. it's, feeling, it's feeling that sense of community. 
Um, and then I think I, I have some messages about how to handle loss because it was really the loss of his mother that drove my dad over the edge. He was already kind of nuts, but it really drove him over the edge. And I think it's, you know, we have to learn how to grieve because life is all about losses. How do we do that? How do we grieve and not go crazy? And that's, I mean, that's a question I go through every day of my life because I don't like losing things and I don't like losing people. But how do you do that in a way that, that keeps you sane and helps other people? Yeah. I think that's probably, and we only have a couple minutes left, but I think that's really, that really says it all because all of us globally have experienced a loss and how we handle that loss. First, we have to acknowledge that we've experienced the loss. Now, what are we going to do about it? Because we don't have a choice. Yeah. It's happened. And, we, yeah. and just as you say, we're grieving. And um, I mean, I think that's the key. So let's read your book. Uh, don't go crazy yes, without me. Let's read my book. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Deborah Lott. Deborah, okay, so tell us, because uh, everything's online, so what website should we go to to find well, out? Well, I think you can go to you. my own website, DebraALott.com, and it will tell you various places you can buy the book. I think that um, for a while Amazon wasn't shipping quickly, but they now seem to be shipping again books, so that's a good thing. Um, if your independent bookstore is still selling, some independent bookstores are doing like drive-by service where you can order a book and and get it directly. Um, that's a good idea. My publisher, Red Hand Press, sells books directly. Uh, you can get it from them. And there, I think there are a couple other websites on my website that uh, give you links for buying the book. So it's, it's, I think it's widely available out there. You just have to look for it. Don't go crazy without me. No, <laughs> don't go crazy. And you can read it on your Kindle, I assume, too, or on I <laughs> yes, it's on my Kindle. I- Great. It's absolutely on Kindle. Well, stay safe and, as everyone says, and healthy and, and sane. Thank you. I always add that, and I think it's appropriate. <laughs> um, yes, healthy, let's healthy. All try to yeah. stay sane. And, and, and keep there each was, other sane as well. Because the other thing I learned from my childhood is that insanity can be contagious. Yeah. So let's keep okay. one another sane as much as we can, too. Okay. Let's uh, socially distance ourselves from insanity. Let's leave it at that. Thanks, Deborah, for being <laughs> on the show. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 